Section 28 of the Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 2, Chapter 11, Peace of Aix-la-Chapelle. The campaigns in the Netherlands were wholly in favor of the French, and it is no wonder that by the early part of 1748 the Dutch and the English thought that the war had continued long enough. The Dutch were not only utterly exhausted, but in imminent peril. They saw their cities, even their strongest, falling one after the other into the hands of Marshal Saxe. It seemed impossible to resist him, and if they did not speedily come to terms, they expected that their whole land would be overrun. The English also were gaining nothing from the war, and began to ask themselves what possible advantage could come to them from it. The expense was enormous, as the war had already cost sixty-four millions. It does not appear that much of this large sum had been spent in fighting Spain, for the Spanish part figures only at the beginning of the war, and then became an affair of privateering. The privateers repaid themselves and did not cost the treasury a penny. The whole expenditure had therefore gone for the maintenance of the balance of power in Europe. On the other hand, to one who considers only the war in the Netherlands, it would seem that France was behaving with unexampled magnanimity. Having won all the victories, she was prepared to forego the advantages arising from them. The French were winning back their ancient glory, and Saxe was atoning for Marlborough. Yet after every battle, King Louis said that he only desired peace. With a message to that effect, he released the English general, who had been taken prisoner at Laufeld. He wished to behave, he said, not like a merchant, but like a king. In truth, France was thoroughly exhausted by the heavy taxation for the war. Though successful in the Netherlands, in Provence she had suffered invasion. Her colonial possessions, both in America and in India, were captured or threatened, and her navy, never very strong, was all but annihilated. Since the death of King Philip of Spain, France was practically deserted by her former ally, for Philip's successor, Ferdinand the Wise, was very lukewarm in supporting the war. Moreover, a new power was being added to the alliance against France. Chiefly through the aid of heavy English subsidies, Russia had been induced to send a large army into the field. This army was on the march for the seat of war when the negotiations for peace began. Early in 1748, a congress was summoned at the old capital of Charles the Great, Aachen, or Aix-la-Chapelle, a city famous for congresses, perhaps selected for that purpose, because since the days of the Romans it had been a favorite watering place. Now Maria Theresa was by no means as anxious as the others for peace. She was gaining from the war, and not being in a position to lose much, seemed to care little how much Holland and England lost and expended on her behalf. Seeing the reluctance shown by her ambassador at the Congress, the representatives of Holland, England, and France acted separately, and late at night, or early in the morning of April 30th, the preliminaries of peace were signed between them. Diplomacy in those days, as one hundred years earlier at the Peace of Westphalia, was slow in movement. The preliminaries put a stop to the fighting, 
and the diplomatists then worked for nearly six months, chiefly in overcoming the objections of Maria Theresa. The definitive treaty, which hardly varied from the preliminaries, was signed on October 18, 1748. Yet the arrangements made were simple enough, for in most matters it was a return to what is called the status quo antebellum. All conquests were to be mutually surrendered. Thus England gave back the island of Cape Breton, a colony of the French in North America, and called by them Ile Royale, but taken during this war by the New Englanders who dismantled Louisbourg, a capital which has ever since been left a heap of ruins. Ten years later, in the Seven Years' War, the English won the island back, and it still forms part of our colony of Nova Scotia. France, on her side, gave up all her conquests in the Netherlands, apparently much more substantial gains. The right of Frederick the Great to Silesia, as settled by the Peace of Dresden, was recognized. It is no wonder that Austria did not like the treaty, for she had not only to acquiesce in the cession of this important province, but to yield sundry places in the Milanese to the King of Sardinia. She also lost the Duchy of Parma, which, with the Duchy of Piacenza, taken from Sardinia, was to be assigned to Don Philip, the second son of the King of Spain. Only the condition was added that if he died or became King of Naples, the duchies were to be restored, Parma to Austria, and Piacenza to Sardinia. Dunkirk was to be dismantled on the seaside according to former treaties. France agreed not only to give up supporting the pretender, but even to make him leave France. As has been already narrated, he refused to go upon persuasion, and the stipulation of the treaty was only carried out by the use of actual force. Austria's gain, besides escaping the dismemberment originally proposed, was solely that France agreed to acknowledge the emperor and to recognize the pragmatic sanction, that is, Maria Theresa's right to her father's dominions. It is certainly curious that in the treaty no mention was made of the right of search which had led to the war between England and Spain. Yet this was the one matter of real importance to England. Was she to have free access for her trade and for her expansion to the New World? The question of the balance of power in Europe really affected England very little, and if it had not been for Hanover, might have been disregarded by English statesmen. It is strange that the Spanish War was, after a spasmodic effort at first, always allowed to languish, while such efforts were being put forth on the continent of Europe. The Spanish War, perhaps, was needed. With respect to all the rest, Walpole's policy would have been much of the wisest. Fifty thousand men slain this year in Europe, said he during the Polish Succession War, and not one Englishman. Had it not been for the war, the rebellion, the forty-five, would not have taken place, and all the fighting, all the expenditure was in vain. When, through sheer exhaustion, the combatants dropped or sheathed their swords, there was positively no change in the position of affairs. But the seeds of a later and crueler war were sown. The long but somewhat intermittent war now ended was but the prelude of the Seven Years' War. Lord Chesterfield, who was very desirous that peace should be made, certainly a laudable desire, declares in a letter to a friend 
that by the peace England was saved from bankruptcy. In another letter just before the Congress, he had said that money was never so scarce in the city, nor the stock so low, even during the rebellion. Twelve percent is offered for money, and even that will not do. This can only have been temporary. England can hardly have been so exhausted as Lord Chesterfield thought, for her finances soon improved. In the year following the treaty, the three percents were above par, and measures were taken by the ministry to redeem the four percents and to consolidate the whole national debt at three percent. This does not look like exhaustion, but like extraordinary prosperity. After the peace there was a large disbandment of soldiers, the army being reduced by as many as 20,000 men. It was feared that these men would not be ready to return to quiet paths of industry, and in order to prevent trouble and to stop discontent, concerted emigration on a large scale was proposed. Nova Scotia was the colony selected, and grants of land as well as of a free passage, together with the necessaries of life for one year, were made to men and to officers who left the army. It is said that these soldiers proved excellent colonists. Nova Scotia had originally been a French colony under the name of Acadie. In the reign of James I, the English took it from them, and it was to pay for the expense of this colony that James I instituted the Order of Baronets, selling admission to it. The colony became a bone of contention between the two nations, passing now to one, now to the other, until it was finally ceded to the English by the Peace of Utrecht. In France, the hero of the war was Marshal Saxe. At the court there were cabals against him. On the ground of his being Protestant, objections had been urged against his promotion to the position of Marshal but the people admired him and showed their admiration whenever he appeared in public. In the first fervor of enthusiasm after Fontenoy, the king presented him with a royal palace, Chambord, near Blois on the Loire. This large palace, built in the style of the Renaissance, in the heart of a great forest, has, in spite of French revolutions, remained the property of the royal house of France, and in our days has given the title by which was known the prince who represented that house, and who honorably, rather than prudently, preferred the traditions of his family to the crown. At Chambord, Saxe lived for a year or two after the peace. His ambitious soul was full of dreams, especially with dreams of a kingdom for which he was prepared to go even far afield. He thought of establishing a kingdom in the island of Madagascar, a curious anticipation of later French ambition. His eyes were turned also toward Corsica and toward the project of leading a French colony to America. But death came upon him as he dreamt these dreams and cut them short. Over the facts of his death a mystery hangs, for there is a tradition, apparently not without some foundation, that Marshal Saxe received his death wound when secretly engaged in a duel with a prince with whom he had quarreled in the Netherlands. It is interesting to add that a granddaughter of Marshal Saxe was the famous French novelist who is generally known as Georges Sand. End of section 28